During the Green Sundays, I always mention that one of the things that's part of uh, the themes that run through the Green Sundays are the nature, cost, and the ways and means of of discipleship. And last week, I read to you a list of things that are um, ways of being a disciple, and I'll read them again. One who keeps the Sabbath and commits to attending worship regularly. One who witnesses to an intentional faith as modeled in the baptismal covenant. One who seeks to honor the tithe as the biblical standard of faithful financial giving to the church. One who uses her or his spiritual gifts in the work of the upbuilding of the church. And one who reaches out to others with the love of Christ. I'm going to preach this morning on the reading from 2 Corinthians, and he's going to talk, Paul, about at least one or two of these things that I just read. And then I want to say something about the healings in Mark's gospel, and to say some general things about uh, how we understand the healing stories in the gospels, and what has occurred here beyond merely uh, the healing of the individuals who were part of this story and why it might have application uh, to our own lives. Some uh, recent biblical scholarship that uh, has been done about the New Testament has suggested that 2 Corinthians may in fact be more than one letter. It could be uh, two or three, uh, but that depends on, you know, whether you're obsessively going through the text and writing a PhD dissertation, which is usually what uh, you need to do these days to get your PhD. But it's interesting to say this because it means that Paul had a correspondence with the Corinthian congregation because many issues uh, had been raised and were communicated to him in his absence. So here's the situation on the ground. Paul is engaged today and in other places in Corinthians uh, in a defense of his apostleship. In his absence, there there were people who came into Corinth, already a church on the bleeding edge of the dysfunctional church movement, and had said to them, You know, Paul may have told you these things about the way the church uh, should behave or what it means to be a Christian, but we're telling you this, and this is the real story, and this is what you need to do. Next week, I'm going to preach on 2 Corinthians again because Paul recounts in that story, in that part of the letter, Uh, about a a mystical experience that he had himself, even though he says it in the third person. And so it affords the opportunity for Paul to address that issue, which this group thought was absolutely necessary to demonstrate that you had it, or got it, to have these mystical experiences. So today he spends some time uh, defending his uh, apostleship, But then he begins to speak about stewardship and the stewardship of resources 
and also something that uh, had occurred, which was that the Corinthian congregation joined with other churches that Paul founded and agreed to make a contribution to support the church in Jerusalem. Probably the most generous group were the Philippians who had agreed to do this. The Philippian church is probably one of the healthiest of the churches that Paul founded. It also affords the opportunity to say, you know, Paul was not founding churches in hick towns. Christianity began as an urban movement. I'll say that again. Christianity began as an urban movement. So, Philippi was about 40,000 people, which is pretty big for the ancient Near East. And the Corinthian congregation was, was, uh, Corinth was a fairly good-sized city as well. So he's speaking to them and thanking them about their inclination to do this, about their pledging, and about this. And prior to me getting into the meat of that, I'll say that what I read to you at the beginning of the sermon is probably stated better. Well, why didn't you just state it that way in the first place? Because. In the Catechism, Uh, of the Book of Common Prayer, the question is, what is the duty of all Christians? Answer. The duty of all Christians is to follow Christ, to come together week by week for corporate worship, and to work, pray, and give for the spread of the kingdom of God. So this is what Paul is on to when he speaks to the Corinthian or writes to the Corinthian congregation about this. And he is uh, not allowing himself to be tempted by the lack of faithfulness that he perceives in the Corinthian congregation about the fickleness both of their commitments and of their support. So here's what he says. You heard it read earlier. Paul is suggesting, you know, it's, it's actually better with people when you talk to them to suggest, not to tell somebody. Here's what you do, right? I had a lot of that when I was a kid, you know. Of course, most people do that. This is what you do. So we promptly said, okay. And when we were out of sight, no. We did something else. So Paul is speaking in this way. And this, and in this matter, I am giving my advice. It is appropriate for you who began last year not only to do something but even to desire to do something. Now finish doing it so that your eagerness may be matched by completing completing it according to your means. For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, 
not according to what one does not have. I do not mean that there should be relief for others and pressure on you, but it is a question of a fair balance between your present abundance and their need, so that in their abundance, that their abundance may be for your need in order that there may be a fair balance. As it is written, the one who had much did not have too much, and the one who had little did not have too little. You know, if I were king for a day in the United States of America, that would be the public policy of this government. The one who had much did not have too much, and the one who had little did not have too little. Oh no, what is he suggesting? How do we match our abundance with other people's need? So let's say that this is a sort of an advance of the fall. There's a stewardship sermon embedded in this to some degree, right? About our own generosity in giving. But we need to have a reflection also about what is abundance. And every human being possesses some form of abundance that is available to assist others in need. And I'm speaking here about, maybe without sounding too therapeutic, uh, emotional abundance. Support, you know, reaching out in love and concern for other people. I say that not meaning that we all ought to take on projects, other people who become our project, right? Church life has been replete with this ever since I've been a priest in the Episcopal Church. It is rife with that kind of understanding of what it means, right? Because usually when you take a project on, you want to see it completed according to your own way. Not with how the spirit moves in the course of the relational uh, bond that is established in reaching out in love and concern. Now you can translate that to the way we uh, interact with our colleagues at work the way we interact with our families, the way in which we interact with our friends and associates, all of those things are there. So rather than just be there, uh, think about how you might share your abundance and make it available to other people in need, just as their abundance will be available to you when you are in need, you know? So maybe the first prayer that we offer to God is, God, help me suggest. And how do I do that? What's, what are the things that I need to do? But Christian people believe in God's abundance. We talk about time, talent, and treasure. Those things are all true. But all of us possess skills and abilities that are useful to other people. 
And if you've had a long experience with things, you have a lot of practical wisdom to share in big and small ways. That's part of the abundance, you know. Doesn't mean you throw your head back and tell all your people about how smart you are. It merely says you've been through this, you've been to this place before, and here's what went on with you, and this is what you can suggest to other people about it, and how that might be a way of sharing your experience, strength, and hope. It's possible. So we move now to the gospel. And we have two healing stories. Mark, you know, the the process of putting a gospel together is taking uh, the oral and written traditions that were around in the communities and putting them now in written form. And Mark today has put together uh, two healing stories that are following on Jesus speaking. I mentioned at the 9 o'clock sermon, I saw a YouTube video a couple of years ago Uh, of someone talking about, you know, you hear this stuff, Jesus was in the boat and he was speaking to the crowds or he came on the shore and he was speaking to the crowds. Somebody says, well, yeah, how many? He was speaking to 25 people. How many people could hear him? What do we mean when we speak about crowds? Well, there are locations in where this is being described that are like a natural amphitheater. And people can stand there even now and speak without amplification and it can be heard by large numbers of people. I merely mention this is this is not a fanciful story. It's possible. Jesus was speaking to a lot of people and they were listening. So at the, during this, Jarius, one of the leaders of the local synagogue, comes up and said, my daughter's very sick and she's going to die. Would you come and see her, heal her? And he goes. And on the way, the people are pressing in. There's a big crowd and there's a woman in the crowd who has had bad hemorrhaging for 12 years. And uh, as the result of this, She has sought advice from many doctors and undergone uh, difficult treatments and she has exhausted her financial resources. Does this sound familiar? This is 2015. Do you think that this just happened in the ancient Near East? No. I have to tell you that I'm very happy that I live in 2015 and not in 1915 uh, when I went through my recent health crisis. I'm grateful, very grateful. But we can still get marched through treatments and we can still use a lot of money up to do this because, you know, judgment is something that is a moving target for a lot of people. In any case, she believes that if she touches his clothes, she will be healed. And she does it and is. The consequences of the hemorrhaging have disappeared. She feels inside as though she has been healed of her disease. And when you read these stories in the original, you understand that what happens when Jesus heals people is that they have had an internal change. 
there has been an internal change of mind that has taken place together with their faith. So Jesus' healings always point to something else. In fact, they're not usually referred to in Greek as healings, but as works of power. So they see these healings and what do they think? Well, what sense are we to make? He then goes to Jairus' house. Somebody comes out. The usual Middle Eastern scene. Wailing, crying, all of the precursor to now mourning. And somebody comes out and said, the girl's dead. There's no use going in. So he pushes them to the side and he goes into the house with uh, the, the inner circle of his apostles. And he goes into the house and he brings the parents in and they come into the room where the girl is. Uh, Talitha Kum is Aramaic. That's, it's not Hebrew, it's Aramaic. So he says that and the little girl, he said she's just sleeping and he gets up and she starts walking around. She was 12 years old. And he's healed her. And then he says, give her something to eat. You know, that's a good idea for a lot of us generally. There's a saying in some circles, halt. Have you ever heard that? Don't get too hungry, too angry, too lonely, too tired. Give her something to eat. It also is a testimony in the ancient Near East that she was raised from the dead because she's going to eat something. Right? She's like alive again. So what sense are we to make out of these two healing stories? Well, here's the thing. Jesus heals two people who in the religious practice of his culture and people were considered unclean. A woman who has been bleeding for 12 years is unclean. A corpse is unclean. And people who associate with them are put their own purity in jeopardy. So Jesus ignores this and he heals them. Reginald Fuller, one of my favorite New Testament scholars, said these healing stories are about how God moves out beyond the confines of what could be understood as his own law to seek and heal the lost. You know, there are a lot of Christians who believe that the first thing you need to do, that I need to do, is to check all the boxes and to make sure that we're on board with regard to even some of the most abstruse doctrines of the Christian church. Now, I, as a priest, who still maintains, after all these years, some interest in all this, get worried, nervous, and anxious about the fact that we sit too lightly on the doctrinal understanding of Christianity. 
But we have a text here that says that all may be so, David. But the fact of the matter is that the Savior of the world went beyond what people believed God wanted them to do and did the right thing. And if he is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the template that we lay over our own spiritual life and development, then it provides us the opportunity to do that as well. You know, we have enormous opportunities for uh, healing in this culture now that we've begun to see happen over the last week. Things that have gone on where we, we maybe have made some progress or are in the process of making progress. And we can understand that by virtue of the fact that things that were considered at one time absolutely out of the question have now become the way in which we understand the work of the Spirit in the lives of human beings and what God is calling us to do. That's very important, you know. So if you have difficulty with uh, the ins and outs of the doctrine of the Trinity or whether the bread and the wine become Jesus' body and blood, or what do we mean by a variety of things in terms of uh, life after death and all of those things, don't worry about it. My experience is that people who begin to commit themselves to this and if they have any desire at all to be a student of the deep things of Christian faith and life normally move in a more orthodox direction than in a less orthodox direction. That's been my experience. I hate to use that terminology. Some people say, oh, don't, don't say that to me. But the fact of the matter is it's true, you know. So that's, that's encouraging in that way. But first, the first thing is how God works in the lives of people, in the commonplace activities of our interaction with one another. And here Jesus is in the middle of a group of people and in a community of which he is a part. And we have absolutely no evidence that in his own private piety and practice that he was not a very faithful Jew. But in this case and in other places, he's going to step outside that. And he's going to heal people. I've said this many times, the, the original languages, the words for to heal are the same words that are used to save or to make whole. So we need to be about that. We need to be about healing in the world in some ways. So this week, think about the ways and the means by which you will match your abundance with other people's need. And maybe more to the point to express gratitude for people who have abundance in different areas who have given some of that abundance to you when you needed it. Helped you. Made you feel better. And think about the ways in which you can participate in uh, the work of God's healing power in the world. You know, 
we have a very caricatured sort of Hollywood understanding of what he, being a healer is. But being a healer is merely uh, being able to uh, be centered in the spirit of God and commend that to other people. You know, the highest and best of your humanity. So th- these are two readings about uh, real discipleship. Amen.